Let's pray. Lord, we've had, we've had a rich morning of being reminded that Christ is our King. And that though the nations rage, though peoples plot their rebellion against you, though in many parts of the world people strive to persecute Christians and, Lord, from our perspective, often succeed in their plans. Yet we know that, Christ, you walk with us. That for those of us who are in you, you have chosen us from before the foundations of the world. And we have been purchased by your blood. So we know we're precious in your sight. We know that you cannot abandon or forsake your body because you are the head. And so you care for us. So, Lord, we need supernatural insight and wisdom to understand what you're teaching us in Psalm chapter 2. And we pray that you would grant that to us. Lord, encourage the faint-hearted, the weary Christian. By the power of your Spirit, break the stony, hard parts of people's hearts who are harboring sin. And if there's people in here that don't know you, oh Lord, show them the futility of rebelling against you. And cause them to come and to kiss your Son, that they might be saved by him. Answer these prayers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many people have heard of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Constantine is the Roman Emperor who famously professed Christ. And, and whether this was a wise decision or an unwise decision, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. What most people don't know is about the emperor immediately preceding Constantine. His name is Diocletian. He reigned from the years 284 to 305 AD. One report of Diocletian says that he began a furious persecution against Christians during his reign in the year 303. So kids, we're talking about roughly 1,700 years ago. He ordered the doors... This is one example of his persecution. He ordered the doors of the Christian church at Nicomedia, which is an area just south of modern-day Istanbul. He ordered the doors to be barred shut. And while 600 Christians were meeting in the church doors, he ordered those under him to set it on fire. 600 Christians were... Trapped in their church building, the place where they come to gather and to worship King Jesus. Diocletian also issued edicts against Christians throughout his a 10 year period. He said that church, he, he demolished church buildings, he rounded up Christian literature, books, he ordered them seized and then burned them. Under his 10-year persecution, Christians were, they were persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. 
The heavy persecution lasted until 313 when Constantine took over as the emperor of the empire. Why all this animosity toward Christians? For worshiping Jesus Christ. As we all know, that's not an isolated event in the history of Christendom. Even now, Christians are severely persecuted in in similar ways in countries like Iran, parts of China, North Korea and Saudi Arabia and and other parts of Central Asia, the Middle East and South Asia. With severe consequences for following Jesus. Christians have been imprisoned or put to death ever since the beginning of Christianity. When Christ rose from the dead and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Even this past week, we learned that in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that all seven evangelical Christian seminaries have been shut down in Ukraine. Four of them are being run, taken over by Russian soldiers. The very place meant to train men and women to carry out the gospel, to raise up pastors, to Keep promoting the good news that you can be saved from your sins. Shut down by evil powers. How do we filter such knowledge as Christians? We just sang almost in every song about the reigning rule of Jesus Christ. And we hear news like that. How do we process that? What do we do with that? It often seems like the plans of evil just triumph. They go on and on, and they win, they win, they win. And we're mocked and reviled, seen as unimportant in the eyes of the world. And oftentimes not neutral, but actual threat to whatever the world is promoting. Psalm 2 teaches us that God is even sovereign over such evil. In the psalm, we're going to see that knowing the sovereign reign of Christ gives us happy confidence when evil is seemingly triumphant. Knowing the sovereign reign of Christ gives us happy confidence when evil is seemingly triumphant. Go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. It's found on page 448 of your pew Bible. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge. In him. We're going to go through this portion of scripture, this Psalm chapter 2, in, in four different parts. And they're, they're each three verses. So one to three, four to six, etc. As we look at knowing the sovereign reign of Christ can give us happy confidence when evil is seemingly triumphant. Look at verses one to three, the nation's plot. The nation's plot, verses 1 to 3. Psalm 2 opens up with this rhetorical question, like, why are the nations raging? Why are they plotting in in vain, in emptiness, in futility? As if to say, what sense does all this plotting and all this scheming make? It's baffling. It's nonsensical. It's, It's futile to engage... In the way that they're trying to engage against the Lord and against his anointed. The word plot there, if you see it in verse 1, look back up at uh, Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. You don't see it in English because it probably wouldn't make much sense in English, but this is the same word. Psalm 1, verse 2 says this, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditate... And the word plot is the same word. So you see what the psalmist is doing there. He's trying to draw a contrast. The blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He will be prosperous. He'll be blessed. He is a wise man. But the nations, the peoples, they plot or they meditate how to take down who? The Lord and his anointed. There is this great contrast with the blessed man who desires to follow divine counsel and and put his mind in God's word. And while these nations, the peoples of the earth, they spend their time opposing God's word. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Their plans are specifically set against Yahweh and against his anointed king. They have a desire to break free from his rule. That's what verse 3 means there. Let us burst their bonds apart. We don't really talk like that this, these days. Let us cast away their cords from us. It's, it's a way of saying that I don't want to be under that authority. I find it oppressive. It kills my joy. And therefore, 
I'm going to rage and I'm going to plot on how to get out from under this authority. And the psalmist is really drawing this kind of top-down approach. Kings and rulers are doing this and also those under them. Under them. So you do have kings, you have rulers, you have nations, which means peoples. All plotting to be away from the rule of God and his anointed son. They don't want to be fettered to him. The sense here is that there is this, there can be this cold kind of calculated anger and raging. But it's planning, it's plotting, it's, it's, it's a way to escape from this king. I get the picture of, of what I, I saw a couple weeks ago of Vladimir Putin meeting in this large boardroom. I don't know if you've seen it. He's on one side and, and all those kind of under him are on the other side. They're sitting. They're talking. They're plotting. They're meditating on how to win this unjust war. Or I think of Nazi leadership under Adolf Hitler. Just sitting there scheming how they can take over Europe and, and make the Jewish race extinct. There's this evil alliance going on here against God. They don't want to be ruled by his Messiah, the true king. Rather, they're craving their own rule. And they're even making alliances with other nations. You see that? Evil King A and evil King B are getting together because they don't like being under the authority of the true king. And you see that through Israel's history is that sometimes Israel and their unfaithfulness, they'll plot and scheme with one evil nation or this evil nation will combine with this evil nation to take down God's people. They want to serve their own gods. The nations want to carry out their own desires. At the heart of it all is this. They are believing the lie that the blessed, prosperous life is not found in God and not found in God's word. But is found in anything but him. So what God has said, what God has revealed, that does not bring blessing. That is what they're saying. This is what is quoted in uh, Acts chapter 4. When, when Peter is preaching, he says, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. You see that? Herod and Pontius Pilate used to be kind of enemies. They didn't really like each other. But where did they find their unity? Around taking down God's son. And then they combined with the peoples, the Gentiles, and then with the Jewish people, all to contrive a plan to crucify God's only begotten son. Rulers don't like the reign of Jesus historically. Peoples don't like the reign of Jesus. Just consider how rulers in this world currently are plotting to operate under their own rule and to, to 
burst the bonds and to tear away the cords of God's reign. I, I think about the, the evil going on in parts of China of gathering up Uyghurs, a people group there, and putting them in internment camps, forced abortions. And for Christians, Uyghur Christians, they're doubly persecuted. So Uyghurs are persecuted because of their ethnicity. And then if a Uyghur is a Christian, they have this kind of double persecution. They're persecuted by the government, but also by uh, their neighbor, other Uyghurs. And then you can, you can think of, of Russia. Who, who, a few years ago, they made it illegal to proselytize or to evangelize outside of church walls. You can think of, of Canada. Uh, January 7th, Bill C-4 in Canada became law. Bill C-4 says it's criminal activity to help anyone who has a desire to change their sexual orientation, let alone even initiate a conversation with them. I think in many ways you could see it this past week if you watched some of the Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings where a judge, a ruler nominated to be one who judges justly the people tried to skirt around the issue of defining even a woman. She's just the voice of half of America, or if not more. In all these ways, we see that people are wanting to burst their bonds. They don't want to be under the rule of King Jesus. And we see, friends, the only place where the rule of Jesus is, is going to thrive in this world before he comes back is the local church. In the local church, Jesus is the head. In the local church, the people are led by Jesus through his word. I wonder if, you, if you've never been under good authority before. Maybe your parents, your mother, your father. Maybe an employee or an employer. Maybe in various ways, different governments. If you've never been under good authority, you understandably have a healthy um, you, you understandably have a sort of skepticism when it comes to authority. But in a local church whose, whose authority is based on Scripture, on God's Word, where there are kind shepherd leaders that are tethered to God's Word, friends, it can be very unhealthy to have a skepticism to good authority. I think the tragic part of it is, is when someone hasn't been under good, kind authority before, is that when they are eventually under good, kind authority, they don't even recognize it. They don't know what to do with it. They've never been led well before. And so when trying to be led well, they don't know what to do with it. And they react rebellious toward it. It's tragic that guidance and rule was so marred and corrupt in the past can still affect someone even when they're in a good church or under good parents or under the leadership of a good husband or a good employer. They can't recognize it. 
Well, friend, if you find yourself in a local church that has nominated and called godly shepherds, whose character lines up with the character qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, who look to the word when making decisions, who preach expositionally, friend, you can be encouraged that no, there's not perfect authority, even in our church. Far from it, but there is good authority. There's faithful authority. There's trustworthy authority. Friends, this is not a place where the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. That goes on outside the church. But in the church, in the church, and all churches throughout time are meant to be founded on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And now he rules through his word. And the church calls shepherd leaders to to rule and to lead by his word. But even then, they are held accountable to the church. This is good news in a world that is raging against a good God. Well, secondly, in verses 4 to 6, we see God's surprising response to this evil. Look at verse 4 in this surprising response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's interesting. Verses 1 to 3, you have the most prominent people of the earth and even those under them who are scheming how to break free and establish their own kingdoms apart from God's. And on an individual level, what this is saying, that even in your own heart, you want to be, you want autonomy, you want to self-rule. With all this going on, Verse 4 says basically that God is not in a tizzy. God is not worked up. He's he's not trying to corral the heavenly host and say, what are we going to do? I'm flustered. I don't know what to do. That's not what God's doing. Notice this. He's not worked up. He's not in a tizzy. He's not even standing up. What is he doing? He who sits in the heavens, he's seated on his throne. And he laughs. He laughs, sitting down in the heavens. Friends, it's it's not that he thinks this is funny at its core. The second line in verse 4 gives us greater insight into this kind of laughter from the Lord. He's holding them in derision. He, He, in a sense, ridicules them for their vain efforts. He's mocking them in a way for their their futility, for their vanity. I I wonder if that strikes you as odd. I wonder if that strikes you as, in a sense, unsympathetic. Perhaps it does strike you that way. But I wonder sometimes... Speaking in generalities, especially in the West, we just haven't faced great evil before. I imagine most of us have, have not lived through wars. Most of us haven't had to evacuate our homes. I do know many of us in this room, in this church, have had really difficult upbringings under Authority that in many ways was evil toward them, that didn't guard them, that didn't protect them, didn't care for them, misused them, abused them, neglected them. 
And so when God laughs at those plans, we must understand what is at the heart of that? What's at the core of this laughter? Because the plans of the nations often seem effective. I mean, what really happened in the last two weeks is that Russian soldiers under evil leadership, under evil dictatorial leadership, they went into a sovereign nation state and they took over seven seminaries. Four of them they're living in and ruling in now. So it actually seems effective. And so when we read this, We know the character of God. We know he's not cold and aloof to pain and suffering. So why does he laugh here? What gives God confidence in the face of evil? And what can give us such confidence in the face of evil? How can God sit in the heavens and ridicule them with a response of divine laughter? I think in a sense, what's going on here is that God's laughter is an expression of his anger, but also an expression that he is the ancient of days, the one who sits above all this evil. And I think that those of us who are reading this, who are following him, that should give us comfort. He's not sweating because of this, even though the pain is real and the suffering is hard and it feels like it lasts a long time. But for God, he's in the heavens, he laughs. Their rebellion will not incessantly continue. And he's able to, in a sense, laugh because, as verse 5 says, he will speak to them in his wrath. I mean, there is a time coming where his anger, his good, righteous anger will come forth. And here's what he says. As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I have a plan to combat your pathetic, futile plans. This plan throughout biblical history, throughout the theology of the Bible is being, we we see it in a progressive manner unfolding. So 2 Samuel 7 is is known as a place where, uh, as a Davidic covenant... Chapter 7, verse 12 of of 2 Samuel says this, When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So God's going to establish a kingdom through King David. It's going to be one of his uh, descendants. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Not for 20 years, not for 100 years, but forever. So God has a plan. His plan is going to unfold through his son. Sorry, through his king. We'll see his son in the next section. You see, laughter here is meant to show us that God is so above this that God is not threatened by these plans. John Calvin, the French reformer in the 16th century, says this about this text. Laughter is ascribed to God on two accounts. First, to teach us that he does not stand in need of great armies to repress the rebellion of wicked men. 
as if this were an arduous and difficult matter. But on the contrary, he could do this as often as he pleases with the most perfect ease. And in the second place, he would have us to understand that when God permits the reign of his son to be troubled, he does not cease from interfering because he is employed elsewhere or unable to afford assistance or because he is neglectful of the honor of his son. But he purposely delays the inflictions of his wrath to the proper time. Namely, until he has exposed their infatuated rage to general derision. God will make this look as stupid as evil is one day. For now, friends, he's being patient. You see, sin is folly. Sin is folly. You can read Psalm 37 says, do not fret evildoers. Don't fret them. Their day will come. They will be like the chaff which the wind drives away, which Psalm 1 says. Evil is nonsensical. God can laugh at this because it's, it's banal. It doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. It's pathetic. One author says this about the banality of evil. Of evil. Evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought, for as soon as thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine the premises and principles from which it originates, it is frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil. Evil is just lacking in originality. It's so obvious that at its core, evil is Boring, as one author says. It's bland. It's mundane. It's stupid. It's trite. It's dull as dishwater. Evil is ridiculous and dumb. That's why God can laugh at it. It doesn't make any sense. But evil is really compelling, isn't it? It's compelling. Just like in the garden, Adam and Eve were compelled by the evil words of the great deceiver, Satan. But we look at that and we're like, oh my goodness, God's given you an entire garden. You can eat from any tree you want and you're going to pick the one tree he said not to eat from. You see what the Bible is doing with evil? I'm not minimizing the suffering that accompanies evil. My goodness, it is hard. It hurts. It leads to sleepless nights. It leads to anxiety. And grief, but at its core, it's such foolish. But as it's compelling, evil gives birth to, to chaos, and chaos leads to hurt, and hurt can lead to confusion, and confusion can lead to hate, and hate can lead to violence. Evil produces a lot of bad fruit. My friends, we can't overly process and dissect and hope to discover the hidden motives and reasons behind evil. You will be frustrated if you try to do that. Our role is not to be like surgeons and try to figure out the all the heart motivations of people when they engage in evil. That can be helpful to a degree, but at its core, 
Evil is us saying, we don't want to be under your rule, Lord Jesus. We'd like to be under another's rule. There's nothing novel about evil. In the end, evil comes down from sinful people perpetrating evil without a lot of clear thought. You're just not thinking. We choose evil because we're acting a fool. That's why we do it. My friends, be careful of heeding evil. If you're aware of, of, of poor choices, of evil, sinful choices you're making this morning, you know, ask yourself, what is it about Jesus Christ and his reign that, that you're not loving? Why are you not gladly submitting to his rule? I think at the core of it, you'll find it's foolish. How do you know? How do you know whether you're under, whether you're engaging in evil, or how do you know if authority is good? Jesus gave us some ways to do that. He says you can know a tree by its fruit. You know a person by their commitment to meditating on God's word, by, by heeding it, by loving it, by treasuring it, by relying on it. You see, it's not complicated to spot good and evil. It can be difficult, but it's not complicated. Thirdly, we see the royal, son, the royal son's declaration, verses 7 to 9. The royal son's declaration. Now the son gets to speak. You see what's going on here? The nations are raging. The people's plotting in vain. And then Yahweh speaks. And now the son speaks and gets to tell what Yahweh told to him. This royal decree starts out saying, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And 2 Samuel 7, as I referred to earlier, it says that the son will be a forever king. And these words are repeated also in the, uh, in the New Testament in several different places. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7 says that the forever king will be a son to God. There's a connection. That didn't make sense. He'll be a son to God. And then we see this theme carried out throughout the New Testament. So Mark chapter 1 verse 11 says that uh, when Jesus was baptized, he's came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open, and then, a spirit, then the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven says, you are, saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Hebrews 5, uh, chapter 1 verse 5 uses Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 to say that God's son is superior to all the angels. And then the author of Hebrews uses chapter 2 verse 7 in Hebrews 5, to say that the Son is God's appointed new high priest. You see, the Son is a descendant of David, who will be the forever king. The Son is the only begotten Son of God. He is the great and final high priest. And this is what the priest's king, only begotten Son, says here in Psalm 2. He says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All the nations will bow to this king. And all land will be his. The ends of the earth will be his possession. Uh, What seems terrifying and threatening to the rule of God from our perspective will be effortly subjugated by God's Messiah. So, So kids... Children, think about this. 
And the front steps, we have uh, these, these great looking steps. And on the side, there's this railing. The railings are made of iron. So what happened if you were able to take one of those uh, pieces of iron and you had like a coffee mug? And your role was to take the coffee mug, put it down and take uh, an iron bar and just smash it. Would it be hard to crack or to break that coffee mug? It was made of pottery. No, it wouldn't be. You, you would break it easily. But that's how effortlessly this Messiah is able to rule and to reign. You see, there's this scepter language, this rod of iron language, which comes from Numbers 24 and Genesis 49. In Numbers 24, we're told that out of Jacob... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, out of Jacob, there will be one with a scepter and he shall, he'll rise out of Israel and he will dispossess his enemies. In Genesis 49, we get a more understanding, uh, more clear understanding about the Messiah, that he will be like a lion's cub. He will stoop down, he will crouch down as a lion and as a lioness, no one should rouse him. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until worship comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The peoples will not rage against this descendant of Judah. You see, the priest, the king, the son, the Messiah is a lion-like warrior. The Almighty scoffs at their plans because he has a sure solution for all their plans. He's not worried. While there is a lot of drama, the outcome is known. God's not standing in the heavens on the edge of his throne, watching good arm wrestle evil. He will be victorious because his son is victorious. The vain plotting cannot stand against God's unstoppable solution. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus. Matthew 27, before Jesus is crucified, or after Jesus is crucified, says this, the next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. You see this alliance, this evil alliance, Pilate from Rome, the leaders of the Jewish people, Pharisees and chief priests, and they come together and they said, Sir, we remember how the imposter, that is Jesus, said while he was alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Then Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard in front of it. Well, friends, we know that while the nations plotted, while they tried to stop God's Messiah, they could not stop him. But God raised him from the dead three days later. And that is in order to fulfill the second psalm as Acts 13 says. He is God's only begotten son. The Christ cannot die forever because he must live forever because he is the king of a forever kingdom. You see, the inheritance of Jesus and nations are the ones that formerly plotted against his rule. And now they are his. 
So God's enemies now become his sheep. The good shepherd now has sheep who know him by name. And he does this by giving his very life for them. You see, he breaks our hearts, our stubbornness, our desire for self-rule by giving over his own life to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a great king to be so high and mighty, to have the scepter, the rod of iron, and for a time laying it down as he lays down his own life to be crucified publicly, ashamed for all to see. You see, Jesus does conquer, and he conquers through the resurrection. As we sang about earlier, we are born of wounds from Jesus' side. I'm alive now because I'm alive in him. We have life because Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not yet a Christian in this room, let me encourage you to ask yourself, why 2,000 years later all these people gather Sunday morning to worship a crucified Jesus? I'll tell you, we worship him because he rose from the dead. If Jesus would have been merely crucified 2,000 years ago, it would have been an interesting historical event. But we worship him as resurrected, conquering king. Lastly, look at verses 10 to 12. As we see now here that a gospel call to worship the royal son. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wise kings, wise rulers, wise influencers, wise politicians, wise CEOs, wise parents, wise children, wise people. Heed this warning from the son. Kings and rulers are specifically addressed here because they serve as representative heads for all people. Instead of plotting their rebellion against the son, they are called to come and serve the son. They're called to serve him in sincerity. In faithfulness, in reverence, in joy. See, you cannot give lip service to the Son because He's able to know your heart. You cannot have divided devotions as you worship the Son because He is able, He's worthy of all devotion. We are to worship Him with reverence. That's what's meant by fear there, because He's worthy to be revered. And rejoice with trembling. And the sense here is it's a worship that's not a casual worship, but it's a joyful worship. I think about some of those times in your life where you've, you've been so happy or so in awe, we've actually cried. I think about the, my wedding day when uh, I was waiting on uh, the stage, waiting for Kate, the doors to be opened to praise the Lord the Almighty. And the hallelujahs broke out from that song. The doors opened and I saw my bride. And I cried. I cried a lot. There's a lot of weird pictures of my ugly cry face. But I was the happiest man in the world. I got to marry Katie Winslow. <laughs> I don't know if that was a happy scream. <laughs> you see, that's a sense here that 
you know, when we're worshiping here and we sing Ancient of Days and you see people tearing and you hear them kind of sniffling, it's because we have this deep, rugged joy in God's Messiah and his kingship. The deepest moments of joy are reverence. Or I'm certain that Dalton, maybe not Megan, maybe she was extremely tired and exhausted this morning. But Dalton just joyfully holding his daughters this morning. Megan's joy to come hopefully at some point, if it's not already there. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot come to the Father but through him. You will be judged if you have no refuge in him. There's no other way to escape the judgment but through Jesus Christ. So the plea is here. Is here. It says, kiss the Son, meaning worship him with affection. The Son is worthy because he is the one who came to serve and not merely to be served. He is the only one worthy of our ultimate service. He is the one whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And wise people, blessed people, listen to Jesus and obey him by faith. And folly ignores him, rebels him, and then will be caught up in the judgment and be swept away like chaff to eternal judgment. So friends, if you worship the Son, continue to worship him. Every day, every hour, give your life, devote, devote your life to him. Nick and Hannah, as we get to see you again, I want to give you one more plea. Your main objective is to see people from India worship the sun. You want them to kiss the sun, to bow at his feet, forsake all other false gods and come and worship Jesus. And brother and sister, we commission you gladly for that task. Students who are going to the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, we commission you as well. Your task is so that others may kiss the sun and bow down to him. Make that your greatest aim and objective. Now, church, if you have no plans to go overseas, you have neighbors and coworkers who need to kiss the sun to find refuge in his protection, in his shed blood. How can you be more faithful to carry that out. As we conclude here, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the very end. Let me go and ask the musicians to go ahead and come up since I'm running a little bit later than usual here. Look at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. Starting in Revelation 5, chapter 8, found on page 1031 of your Pew Bible. We see that the Son of God is the only worthy one to be praised. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Praise Jesus that he is the resurrected lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Lord, we can have happy confidence in your sovereign rule because we know the end of the story that you will reign no matter what kind of suffering we're enduring right now, no matter the way that evil is affecting our lives, no matter the way that we are losing sleep or having anxiety, no matter the threats of wars, Oh, Jesus, you will reign. We don't see it now. We don't understand all of it now. But you walk with us through it. And even, even if our life is taken from us, our souls will be with you. And one day our bodies will rise triumphantly, just as, Lord Jesus, your body rose from the dead. Oh, God, give us confidence in your sovereign rule, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.